listening to a message from Park Springs Bible Church, located in Arlington, Texas, where we discover life in the power of God's grace and share His life-changing grace with others. Join us as we hear from the Word. Well, good morning. Grateful to see your smiling faces here this morning on this uh, wonderful hot uh, Sunday morning. But uh, we do, I just want to bring you up to speed. So we have been journeying for a while now through the book of Romans. And in the process, really, I think what Paul is doing to the church at Rome, and ideally even here at Park Springs Bible Church, is expanding our view of the fullness of the work of God. And he's doing that through a lot of different avenues, not the least of which relationships with one another, relationships with the world, and even more primarily, relationship with God. And so there's a level of sort of prioritizing or helping us understand that the gospel pushes against every area of our heart, all of our notions about God, all of our longings, desires, and appetites, whether good or maybe not so good, are are things that continually, through the lenses of God's Word, are exposed, and we get a chance to look at them for what they really are. The challenge last week in the first section of Romans 12 was to utilize sober judgment as we think about ourselves, meaning that there's a level of willingness and some sense of vulnerability where we open up the uh, reality of our hearts and we're able to see the things that are generating inside. So the, the good, the bad, the ugly, all of it there and, and ideally seeing it for what it is so that the tactical surgical work of the scriptures continues to develop and transform our lives so that our lives are that which is led for the glory of God alone. And we're, we're able to parse out and be honest about the things that really do exist inside. So really it, it moves us away from pretense or falseness or trying to be fake with our spirituality and, and help us understand that God is doing a work because all of us need work. And so in the process of those things, it really is just helping us kind of dive down deep inside. The challenge last week was, according to Romans 12, verses 1 through 8, was do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of our minds. A significant portion of the way that the Lord works is changing the way that we think. Meaning that often, the way that we think about God, others, and ourselves, at times, is distorted. It's distorted by sin, it's distorted by appetites, it's confused by numerous different things, but the reality of what God is doing is changing the way that we think about God, ourselves, and others. But then he moves into this really interesting category right on the offshoot of that, just kind of moves us and says, as your lives and minds are being changed, what does that look like? And he talks about service. He talks about as we understand God and God is the giver of all gifts and God is the one that's working in our lives. He's called us to invest 
and be used by him in specific and unique ways that he's transformed and given us to, to use the very things that he's given us, the very giftings or passions or desires. He says, for those who teach, let them teach. For those who do these things, those who give, let them give generously. There's, there's just an aspect of saying, look, as, as you realize how you're being used by God, you begin to see God more clearly. I think one of the challenges that maybe isn't exposed in that portion of the text is that when we become those who are so focused and fixated on our own desires or even our own thoughts, and, and even at times we think that we always think accurately about all things around us, we end up distorting and misusing God, and we attach God to the very things that we want, and we end up feeling righteous and even at times self-righteous. So in the process of our service, Paul now moves to a brand new section, but I think it's all married together. So when Paul says, don't be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, and we're, we're living this out, we're doing it in a broken earthly world in the midst of broken relationships, we're seeking to serve God faithfully in ways that honor and glorify Him, what would be the first place that God is going to address as we begin to do those things. I'd suggest to you that this next section of Scripture is probably one of the most primarily difficult portions of Scripture because it addresses the very vacancy and confusion that exists in every single one of our hearts. And the real question that lays before us is how we love. It's confused in our world in numerous different ways. When we talk about love and our generation and in this world, love and acceptance become married to one another, not the biblical view of love. But at the same time, Paul is willing and absolutely committed to the reality that also love isn't about finger pointing. Love doesn't just end up showing and starting to identify all the wrongs in the world and become the most vocal, loudest critic of all of the challenges in the world, he marries those things together. So if you will, I'm going to invite you to open the scriptures, and I know it was read for you, but if you could look at Romans chapter 12 or bring it up on your phone or device, I think this is going to be critical. So let me just remind us of the first verse in Romans 12 verse 9, and here's what he says. Let your love be genuine. Abhor or hate what is evil and hold fast to what is good. So now Paul begins to give us a definition of love. But as he defines love, he doesn't tell us what it is. He tells us what it does. And here's what love does. Genuine love hates evil and clings to good. And I think in our day and age, we tend to run the spectrum of both of those things. Some, if not many, are so convinced that our world and the things around us are so bad and so dark that we get to be the whistleblowers to communicate how evil evil is. And we want to be the most vocal in those things by identifying and hating what is evil. And so we're known for what we hate and we miss the second part of this text, to cling to what is good. We have a hard time seeing good because we're so fixated on the 
evil that surrounds us. And others are so convinced that relationships matter and they worry about whether or not those relationships are going to fall apart, that they're so clinging to what is good that the thought that they would identify anything that's evil in the midst of those relationships is just way too unsettling. And so we move away from biblical love towards acceptance and tolerance, and that's not biblical love either. So what is, according to the scriptures, genuine love? Let me give you the definition that I think Paul is getting at here. When he says, let your love be genuine, the biblical word for genuine is actually love that is non-hypocritical. Love without hypocrisy. Now, hypocrisy in the ancient world meant very, something very specific. The image that would be conjured in their mind would be this. An actor on a stage playing a part. That was hypocrisy in its based, most basic form. It was playing a part, fulfilling a role. Paul says, love is not hypocritical. Love doesn't play a part. Love isn't filled with pretense or pretending that things are worse or better than they really are. Genuine love holds two things in tension, that there is evil out there that we cannot endorse, but in the midst of the evil, there is also good to cling to. The word abhor means hate. The word to cling to what is good gives us the idea of gluing ourselves or cementing ourselves, attaching ourselves to what is good. Genuine love, according to the scriptures, is willing to find the good that exists around us and attach ourselves to it. By not minimizing the biblical standards, by addressing the evil that surrounds us, but not by demonizing individuals to get to that end. You know what I'm saying. Paul is challenging us as we think about not conforming to the pattern of this world is to help us understand that what we are so often influenced by are the very things that we feel like we don't struggle with. And so we can identify and point fingers at the sins of others because they're not the sins that we deal with or wrestle with and end up minimizing and finding ourselves very challenged to find the good in those who are committing evil. Love, genuine love, doesn't pretend. It sees the damage evil does and glues itself to what is good. Love refuses to pretend. That, as I was looking through it this week, became a very significant challenge for me. Because I think about us, I think about life, I think about the people around me, and I can gauge the relationship based on how individuals feel about me, and in so doing, I can love them with false motives. I can long for things and even pretend that things are okay when they're not. Now, if you read this verse just as it is, or these few verses, 9 through 21 together, you could certainly parse it together and get 13 individual sermons. It's as though it seems Paul is just vomiting all the things that you and I need to do to live the Christian life. If you read this section of scripture, many of the titles of this section 
call it the marks of a genuine believer. I hate that title. And here's why. Because I think as you and I find ourselves seeking to honor God with our lives and the transforming work that he's doing, what ends up happening is we were wondering if or when we'll ever measure up. And I don't know where the gospel is in that. I don't understand where the transforming work and the ability to be vulnerable and not pretend and be able to confess to ourselves and even to one another and think of my life and my heart in sober judgment comes to the conclusion that I am not doing this well. I'm reminded frequently of the areas in which the evil done to me is the absolute sole perspective on which I see another individual. So often when I'm hurt, I cannot find the good. And that is a confession. It's not something that I think I'm okay with. There is a challenge in this text. And so here's what I think Paul does. And I'm going to lay out the rest of the sermon for you. I think as Paul says, let your love be genuine. Hate what is evil. Cling, glue yourself, cement yourself to what is good. He begins to spell that out in two different categories. And then he identifies to us what evil really is and how we respond to it. The first category in this next session, section is how we love believers. How we are called to not be conformed to the pattern of this world, to have our minds renewed as we view and think about life with one another. How does God call us to view and to think and to interact with other followers of Jesus, primarily in the context of church? Here's what I think he says. Let's read the scriptures. Let me read it for you in this next section. After he says, let your love be genuine, Hate or abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Look at verse 10. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in the spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. It's as though Paul is just firing up the ammunition of the gospel. And he's like, do this, do this, do this, do this. And, and yet, I think Paul captures all of these things under the auspices of what it means to live a life in the midst of a faith family and a community of faith. And here's what he says. He says, love your brothers with brotherly affection. It's as though Paul gets on a roll and he uses the, the very same word or the cognate of the very same word, phileos, brotherly love, Philadelphia, right? The, the city of brotherly love. Here's what he's saying. He's like, as you think about your brothers and sisters in Christ, you see them like you see your biological family. That you are so convinced that God has brought you to a place and to a people that you are convinced that this is your pack. These are your people. This is your tribe. These are the individuals that God has called us to do life with. And so love chooses family over flaws. Love Biblical love in the midst of community, in the midst of church. If we're viewing church, the local church, as Paul is communicating to the church at Rome, and we've already seen through 11 chapters, things aren't awesome. 
There's conflict. There's people that feel better than other people. There's challenges. There's arguments. There's contention. There's challenges. And yet, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is at work in their lives. He never tells them in the midst of the church at Rome, well, you guys can't get along. Move. I mean, he doesn't say that. He doesn't say, yeah, it's, it's just too, it's too hard. There's some challenges. Just go, go ahead. Just figure it out somewhere else. He says, this is family. And so there's working. And, and ultimately, I realized that the New Testament church didn't have a lot of options. We, in the United States of America and the Bible Belt of Texas, the belt buckle of the Bible Belt, I guess, we have options everywhere. And yet, the compelling reality is if our love is genuine, there's a reality that love amongst believers chooses family over flaws. Because why? No church? No church. Perfect. It's just not going to happen because you have broken people in the midst of a broken world that are being transformed by the challenges of the gospel and where there's hardship and difficulty and hurt, love chooses family over flaws. There's a commitment. And so what does he say? How does that commitment look? He says, here's what is called to happen but doesn't normally happen in the context of our churches. Love one another with brotherly affection. And then what does he say? Outdo one another in showing honor. If it's true that if our love is genuine, that we hate what's evil, but we cling to what is good, then Paul is telling us that in the midst of the church, before we criticize, we communicate what is good and valuable. We see where the hope, where God is doing things. We are willing to outdo and outshow one another with the value that each person brings to the table. We are seeing, noticing, and communicating that there is a significant reason why each person sits in these seats. What they bring to the table, we are willing and wanting to show honor as God works in each other's lives, even when it's difficult. Paul is compelling each individual to take stock of where they're at in their own heart. If it's difficult to find value and to see the good, it's because we're struggling with sober judgment around our hearts and we feel somewhere, some ways self-righteous that we know what's evil and we need to identify it and point it out because if people saw what we saw, then they would do what we do. You know the baseline of that whole conversation? It's me. <laughs> we were talking in home group about this and an individual used the term me monster. <laughs> I love it. The me monster lives and breathes in every side of one of us. Every single one of us. And it's nourished consistently in our lives. Love. Biblical love for the community of faith chooses family over flaws. They were working through the reality of what it means to live as imperfect people in an imperfect world with a perfect gospel. But then he goes somewhere else that I think sometimes we can just detach from what Paul is really saying, but I think it's all united. And I think that what love chooses to do is chooses honor before criticism. It chooses to value the person over the problem. It chooses to invest in the relationship. But then he moves it to this conversation about seeing God and seeing God accurately. Why is that so important? Because it's not our tendency. Here's what happens. 
when I find criticism in my own heart in the areas in which I struggle, when I find myself thinking that things should be different or look differently because I know what's best, I find myself moving into fix-it mode, trying to do what needs to be done and making sure that if people don't see what I see, that they need to be able to see the way that I see it. And so I miss and dethrone God in the process. And Paul says, if we are gonna love family over flaws, where do you start? You actually don't start with family. You actually start with God. And here's what he says, three things that I think are just fascinating as we find ourselves in dry seasons, in difficult seasons, places where we're wondering if God is actually even doing a work. Here are the things that he tells us to do. Do not be slothful in zeal. Don't get lazy in pursuing your walk with the Lord. Why? Because we need constant correction by the truth of God's word. We need it to shift how we see things. Left to our own devices, we will interpret everything based on what we think and feel. And so in the process that we need the constant gauge of the scriptures and we need to be passionate in thinking about how God is changing and transforming us because the gospel is what is at work. And then he says, not only do not be slothful in zeal, but be fervent in the spirit. Like allow the truth of God's word and the power of the Holy Spirit to be at work refining us. It's as though Paul is saying, live your life open-handed. Give God the key to your house, to the house of your heart. Allow the door to be open for God to do whatever he wants to do whenever he wants to do it. If there's sin that manifests itself in your life, if you've been the source of hurt for another individual, confess it as that which seeks to honor God. Be fervent in the spirit. Let the spirit of God generate hope in your life. And then he says, do what? Serve the Lord. You see, as God marries through the conversation that Paul is having with the church in Rome, what he's marrying is the work of God in the midst of the community of faith. And he's saying, ultimately, the service that you're doing to one another and thinking about outdoing one another and showing honor, it's actually about serving God. It's actually primarily about God before it's about anybody else. It's about the reality of what God does in our life. It's about the gospel. Because I think here's what Paul's saying. Before love is something you give, it's someone you receive. Before love is something that you give, it's someone that you receive. You see, genuine love starts with Christ. His work in our lives the trust that he is the chief shepherd of a church that seeks to honor him, that the biblical church seeks Jesus above all things, that the gospel is what is central, the life-transforming power of God's grace is that something that each and every one of us need daily. Because like Tim Keller said, <laughs> before you love something, before love is something you do, it's someone you receive. That someone is Christ. That's the sole basis as we think about how we love one another biblically, how we operate in this world. Our focus, as Hebrews would tell us, is to what? Fix your eyes on Jesus, 
the author and perfecter of your faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame. You see all of these things, Mary. We look at what Jesus went through, and I love what Tim Keller says. He says, you will never be asked to forgive someone more than you've already been forgiven. Ouch. I mean, that's, that's a painful thing to process when I, when I put my own sin before a holy, righteous God and I recognize that the amount in which I've been forgiven by the king of the universe pales in comparison to the forgiveness God is asking me to afford a brother or sister in Christ. Amen? No, we don't have to say amen. And I know it's hard. I get it, but that's where Paul is moving us, is if our love is genuine, if it doesn't pretend, if it's non-hypocritical, what it does is it doesn't play a part. It doesn't minimize the evil done to us by any stretch, but it also seeks to realize that the person that has done evil to us and the challenges that we have faced in this world aren't a complete or full picture of who or what those circumstances are, because God is always at work. And so then he moves to this next section, and this next section is important because as we extricate ourselves a little bit away from just thinking about how God calls us to love brothers and sisters in Christ, that love sees and chooses family over flaws, he now moves into how we love unbelievers. How do we love genuinely the world outside. This is hard stuff. And here's what he says. He says in verse 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with, weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty or, or proud, but associate with the lowly. Never, never, never be wise in your own sight. Repay no evil for evil, but give thought to what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Paul is saying that there are challenges that are before you that either you and I are living now or that challenges that are to come. In the world around us, we live in a world that is evil. There are progressive things that continue to happen that assault the truth of God's word. And we will frequently be targets of those assaults. We don't anticipate or expect that somehow in some way this world is going to be the place that meets all of our needs because our needs are met in Christ. And so we anticipate that as being light into the darkness, the darkness is going to continue to assault us on a regular basis. And in the process of those things, there are categories in which God wants us to consider how genuine love impacts an evil world. How does genuine love impact an evil world? Here's what Paul says. Love knows and sees where God is working and shows up. Love knows and sees where God is working and shows up. This is not just counterintuitive. This is not just countercultural. This is impossible unless Jesus is Lord of our lives. 
This does not come naturally. This is not something that is just based on feeling. These are attitudes and actions in which God is compelling us towards that often our feelings fight against. I don't want to bless those who persecute me. I don't. By nature and by choice, that is the last thing I want to do. What do I want for those who persecute and offend and hurt me? I want them to get their own one day. I do. I feel a sense of justice, and I hate injustice. And yet, as God moves us to those places, what is he saying? He's saying if our love is genuine, and we're thinking of ourselves with sober judgment, we come to the realization that the very thing that we hate about those who have hurt us lives inside of each and every one of us. And we hate to admit it. Because that same offense, that same tendency, there is no sin that exists in this world that I am not capable of committing. And so Paul moves us to that place of thinking, how do we love what God is doing? How do we love well the world around us? How do we bless those who persecute us? We keep the reality of the rescuing power of the gospel front and center. We know and remind ourselves what God has saved us from and what he saved us to. And so much of the work that God is doing in your life is transformative. It's for you, but it's not just for you or just for me. It's for others because genuine love sees humanity in the world around us. There are only two things that last for eternity, the word of God and the souls of men. I mean, God himself is eternal. His word lasts for eternity and the souls of men, men and women, those who persecute us will serve an eternal destiny somewhere. And the heart's desire of the gospel is that would it be in an eternity praising God in heaven, not in an eternity separated from God forever. Love knows and sees where God is working and shows up. He tells us to bless those who persecute us, but he also tells us to rejoice with those who rejoice and mourn with those who mourn. If it's true that he's talking about those who are outside the Christian faith, what is one of the main requirements that would be necessary to celebrate the wins of the world around us and mourn the losses? You have to know people in the world. <laughs> We have to understand their lives. We have to move towards them in such a way that the hurts that they feel are hurts that we would carry with them. The places that they celebrate, we would celebrate with them. An unbelieving individual or an unbelieving neighbor that just had a baby, we as the church would be so aware of milestones in their life that we would be those that would come around and celebrate. When there's a death of a loved one or a fracture in a relationship or a divorce of someone in the neighborhood. The church shows up, cries with those who are crying, carries the hurts of those who are hurting. Church, as God's representatives who seek God above all things, put themselves in the places of greatest Difficulty because we desire God to be honored and to do a work that no one can. 
Because if it's true, if love is something that you, before it's something that you give, it's someone that you have to receive, then the world's version of love is completely and utterly distorted if it's not focused on Christ, period. So we, as representative of Christ, bring Christ to every relationship. And that's where it starts. Is my heart one that honors God before I interact with the people who have hurt me? And so he tells us to pursue the relationships that God has placed in our lap. The neighborhoods, the communities, the co-workers, the difficult bosses, the challenging individuals that we face out of eight billion people in the world. Somehow, in some way, in the sovereign providence of God's grace, not only has he put you with this faith family, but he's also put you in that community. Out of the eight billion people in the world, there are non-believers around you because God has put you there. So what do we do? We love. We love and we look for where God is working. And so finally, he moves us to this final compilation of how we handle evil. Evil that is done to us in ways in which seem inexplicable. What are his calls and commands? Verse 19, beloved, never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I'll repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, you don't stand rejoicing that he got his own and he's just living in the bed that he made. You see a need, you feel that need. If he's hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, you give him something to drink. For by so doing, you heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Paul says in this last section that evil is defeated, not by tit for tat, not by powering up, but legitimately by doing good. The goodness of the truth of the gospel is it compels us into the hardest places and the most difficult relationships. And we're blessing those who are persecuting us, but not even in that. We're moving and allowing God to realize that the resources that he's given us is an aspect of how God calls the gospel to be at work through us. What you have and the things that you've been given are the very things that God will use to transform individuals' view of God and Christians. God tells us that, that they'll know we are Christians by how solid we are politically. I, that's not right. God says that they will know we are Christians by how consistently we're able to give a resume of all of the great things we have done. No, that's not right either. God will show the world that we are Christians by our, our love, genuine love. Not love that pretends that things aren't bad or that fails to see what is good. Genuine love sees others as valuable. Tim Keller says it this way, love helps us understand as we move towards genuine biblical love one of the things that helps is that we, are, we see ourselves as co-sinners 
and co-humans instead of demonizing the people around us. We move towards them with the truth of the gospel. And we realize that God can change us. So here's what he says, and I'll just give you these quickly and close. Here's what evil does. It distorts our view of relationships and distorts our view of ourselves. That's God's plan for evil. And so good disarms by seeing and knowing that God can do miracles in the lives of those around us. And so the five things that he gives us is that we seek the highest good of those who have hurt us. We celebrate the wins and mourn the losses. We choose to honor what God honors. We bend down rather than power up. And we consider ways God could be using what you have been given for the sake of those who have hurt you. I've been thinking a lot as we're preparing for hunting season, so pardon the illustration. But here's my example. Hurt and pain and hurt and sin are ammunition. Evil chambers the round. It desires that the hurt and the pain that you and I feel drive the decision for relationships. We become armed and ready for a fight. Paul says, doing good is what overcomes evil. And you heap burning coals on there. And it's kind of the image that Paul gives us of a, a cold glass of water in someone's face. It wakes them up to the reality that things aren't the way that they see them. Don't be overcome by evil. Overcome evil with good. What's good? Jesus. Every day, Jesus. The transforming work he's doing in your life, it's good. It's good. Trust it. So how do we love brothers with brotherly affection? We choose family over flaws. How do we love the world around us? Well, love knows and sees what is good and, and pursues it. We become the voice of, of truth. We don't endorse evil, but we're also those that are willing to find life wherever it exists because we don't want to be overcome by evil, but we overcome evil with good. But because before, because before we can love as something we do, love is someone we receive. So let me ask you this. Have you received Christ as Lord and Savior? We're turning to communion now as we transition towards the end of this sermon. And here's what I want you to consider. Two things. If you've come in, you're uncertain about where you stand with the Lord. You've never understood this type of radical love that Christ has for your life, this invitation of God receiving, that you receive a love that you cannot earn and deserve, that you realize we cannot figure out life, that we don't understand what even love looks like until we understand the reality of who Christ is. There's an invitation this morning to trust the finished work of Christ on the cross, that his love for you is sufficient, that he invites you into his presence. But more poignantly, for a faith family who lives in the midst of broken relationships, Matthew 5 gives us a directive, and here's the directive. If you have something against your brother and sister, leave your gift at the table and go and make it right. So before we receive and consider what even the reality of communion is as we internalize God's grace over our lives... We have to ask ourselves the question, 
Is there unforgiveness in my heart? Is there something that I am being compelled to do? Now maybe, just like Paul says in this text, as much as depends on you, live peaceably with all men. Sometimes, there's only so much we can do. And if we're at that space, we receive communion as God's grace over our lives. But if there's a space where we're harboring hatred towards another believer in the Lord, we're harboring something, God would ask us to lay it down and make it right. So we turn to prayer and we consider what God is doing. I'm gonna pray for us and just ask that God would give us sober judgment over our hearts, that we would see clearly what he sees and we'd be willing and live, to live open-handedly and let him do what he wants to do, that we would want to honor him above all things. Would you pray with me? Father, we all have hurts. There's not one of us that hasn't been challenged um, and affected by the brokenness that surrounds us. I believe your word is true. And I believe that it says that we're not supposed to be overcome by evil, but that the overcoming of evil is by living based on what is good. Father, we know that only you are good. So help us live for you that our hearts would be just desiring and longing to seek your face above all things, that whatever you compel us to, help us to remember that you never ask us to forgive more than we've already been forgiven. Would you help us lay down things we're holding on to that are not of you and pick up those things that are of you that you're calling us to pick up? God, we want to be a people of grace and goodness. We want to represent, we want to love genuinely. Remove pretense and pretending from our lives that we would be authentic followers of you as we camp out and plant our flag on the gospel. We ask these things in